0: your way back in and settle in. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians, one of the great uh, letters. Um, it's such a song. The whole thing is kind of a song. It actually has one of the most significant and probably oldest hymns of the church within it in Philippians 2. Uh, the whole book is essentially a textbook for church planting. Um, it's, a, it's an amazing Uh, book that has a theme in each chapter and and in Philippians chapter 3 I want to just kind of use the beginning portion of that I have uh, on my notes 1 to 14 but I'm going to kind of wade my way through that and then talk a bit about uh, and I kind of affectionately refer to President Obama's you know uh, uh, campaign of hope and change You know, I believe that there is uh, a message within here in Philippians 3 of both hope and change. So let's sort through it together. Philippians 3, I'm going to, well, I'm not really going to start verse 1, but Paul basically opens up this chapter by reminding his family in faith that they are to have joy in the Lord. And he says that uh, I want to encourage you that, the, that you would just keep that. Basically, this is my interpretation, that that would be something that you would keep, that you would always lay hold of. He warns them to, to watch out for the people who are out, who are, he, you know, It's as a sarcastic Paul saying, uh, be careful of those, those people who want to tell you that the way that you draw close to God is by certain activities of the flesh. Um, and, uh, and he basically says in juxtaposition to this particular act that we put no confidence in the flesh. I think it's one of the most staggering kind of like uh, turns on a dime in Paul's writings where he's, he's making a clear juxtaposition. But he then says about himself, and, and there's a reason I'm wading into this because there's a, word, there's a word in this passage that we don't understand or we, we have such a negative view of it. But it's such a powerful word that it that, that really has um, way more to it than, we've, than we give credit for. But Paul shifts to saying, look, if we were going to get into putting confidence in the flesh, that's what we wanted to do, then I've got plenty of reasons to boast. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's the, that's the fleshly activity that he's specifically referring to. He's like, I've done that. Uh, I'm, I am a, I'm a Jewish man. Uh, people of Israel, I'm of a particular tribe of, that's significant, the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee. So you know how Jesus rails. We we see this railing, uh, you know, against the, 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 the Pharisees. Paul is a Pharisee. I personally believe as a student of the Bible that Paul never stopped being a Pharisee. He, we, we, see, we think of Pharisee as a type of person, like a religious person i the 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 office of belonging to a group of people who were called the pharisees i believe Paul remained you know throughout his life in the in the council or the camp and continued to minister from that platform then he says this as for zeal persecuting the church you see the word persecuting there that's the word this whole thing shifts on we almost exclusively think of this word persecution as a negative word, don't we? We think about, you know, Christians being persecuted or people of all kinds being persecuted for what they believe around the world, and we see this in a negative context. But really this word is not of any positive or negative value. It's just a word that depends very much on the context in which it's used. In this case, Paul was saying when it came to putting Christians to death who were collected around this thing called the church – I did this with zeal. I was, I was endeavoring to destroy the church. If that, that was a goal. My goal was to decimate this church by my activity. And so, so much so, I had so much zeal around this, you would call it persecution. I was persecuting this goal. Okay, you with me? And so he says this, but then it all shifts here in verse 7. He says, but whatever was, was, to my prophet, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, really here, caca, poo-poo. That's the literal word that he uses there is, is, you know, fecal matter. I mean, this is, i being as PG-13 as I can, but this is literally what Paul says. If I interpreted it, Quite literally, the Greek word that's translated here, you you probably would run me out of here today. Um, he says, "I consider that all rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own." Again, comparing that to the righteousness that he found in and of himself as a Pharisee, he says, "I don't don't have that anymore because um, that, that comes just from the law." He said, "But I have a righteousness that comes from God and is by faith." And he says, here it is, I want to know Jesus, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death so that somehow I might attain to the resurrection of the, from the dead. That's really his ministerial aim for himself and for all those who are around him. And then he says this, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made per- perfect, but I persecute that goal. Same exact word, but I persecute this goal to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He's saying, the same way I had zeal and I would decimate the church, this goal, which is to become like Christ, to to participate in the fellowship of suffering, to know him in his death, to be attained to the resurrection of the dead, he said, I'm going after that goal the same way I went after the church. He uses the same exact word, and he says... I'm doing this because Jesus took hold of my life on a road to Damascus. And he said, brothers, sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have fully taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I persecute that goal to win the prize for which God has called me upward or heavenward in Christ Jesus. Um, I'll just stop there and pray. Jesus, would you illuminate this word? Would you open it up for our hearts that we might... Um, feel a certain vulnerability, an anointing, and no dust, would you just let your glory fall on this word? and that, um, Start with me, Lord. Just speak to my heart, and I um, ask Jesus that you would use this for all that have gathered in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I wanted to focus on this passage this morning because for a couple of reasons, you know, it's one of my... Uh, favorite, uh, I, I I cut out chunks of Paul's letters. The letters are great, but I cut out chunks of these letters and say, "Man, if I could just take that and make that my own, if I could write that kind of letter to somebody someday, th- this is one of those sections that I that I put out there." Philippians two, you know, where he talks about let your attitude be that same as Jesus. I wish I could write that. These are this passage here to me is one of the most substantial. Passages in terms of crossroads in life where you 're looking at things that have been and things that are going going to be and saying how do we how do we address this how do we how do we take account of this and I think it 's a pertinent passage for me to preach on the heels of making an announcement that some change is coming because I think what I want to lay out today and a little bit next week is to talk about what changes and what doesn 't and and I think that's a um, this is kind of what Paul is getting at here. Uh, Carol and I feel very much so uh, like we're in a season of life that's not unlike the season of life we were in when we were uh, feeling a call to to go to seminary from, and leave the business practice that we had behind. We were living in a community that was fantastic with friends that were fantastic. We were keeping up with the Joneses. That part wasn't so fantastic we thought it was, and... Um, in a great church and a great community, you know, uh, you know, real near the beach, you know, it's really nice to live really near the beach. Um, how many of you like the beach? Yeah, I used to. Now I have these spots all over my body, so I, I kind of cover up. But, but you know, life is good. And in the midst of that, the Lord said, "Okay, I have a different or another plan for your life. So what I'm going to ask you to do is to is to leave some things behind and to press on." toward what's ahead. And um, we we wrestled with that decision for a long time. I wrestled with that decision for a long time on my own because I thought it was just ridiculous. And I thought, what if someday I'm standing up preaching somewhere and somebody like from high school or college or like, you know, a few weeks ago comes in and sits there and like crosses their arms and is like, I know you. You know, would I have the anointing? Would I have the authority to be able to speak to, to them from the standpoint of forgetting what was behind me and this is who I am and who I'm becoming? And and so I struggled for a long time. And then finally one night after uh, a lot of struggle, I said to Carol, anybody ever watch the old New Heart Show? Not the new or the, the older New Heart Show. There were two. The oldest one where he was a Psychologist, and he'd go. He'd have his practice every day, and the thirty-minute sitcom was some problem. And at the end of every episode, they'd lay in bed. He and his wife would lay in bed, and they would process this. They would summarize the show. Anybody remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Used to be you had like three channels you could watch, and you, and, you know, and you didn't have. You, everybody knew every show, and so our night was very much like that night wasn't it? I can remember exactly where we were. We were laying in bed, and I was kind of laying on my back, staring up at the ceiling. I said, I want to tell you something. And uh, the, it was awkward. You know, these kinds of announcements are awkward, if you don't know. And and she stops me and says, does this have to do with us just selling everything we have and going off to, into ministry? You know what I told her? I said, no. <laughs> because I was so shocked she'd read my mail that, or the Lord had, that I said, no. And she said, well, what is it? And then for the next 60 minutes, I verbally vomited and processed until she said, well, that's exactly what this means. <laughs> and, um, and I said, what do you think? And she said, well, I didn't marry a pastor. And so if you're asking me if I'm ready to go and do this today, the answer is no, I'm not. But if it's what the Lord desires for us, then I'm trusting he'll show us. And over the course of the next season, uh, we, the Lord showed us. And very powerful and different ways ways that were pertinent to our personality you know what we did in order to get it the answer and to get it the calling that we felt in in our lives what we did is we declared a speaking fast we didn't talk about it we talked about it as much as we needed to then we said we're not going to talk about this anymore and we we went on a speaking fast and we prayed and we sought the lord on our own and we declared that we would come back together at a certain period of time and have a date to where we would then pour out what the lord had shown us and carol came to me but before the end of that date and said, okay, I'm done. I don't need to wait anymore. Let's go for it. And we went for a walk on the beach and she told me what we were going to do with our lives. <laughs> and she was spot on. I have no shame in saying that. I'm the head of my household. She's the neck, right? Uh, I have no, no shame in telling you that, that uh, the Lord has oh so often spoken through Carol to bring clarity to my dogging up personality and specificity. So, um, I say all that to say this, that while we're getting ready to go through a change here, um, that I want to tell you that I believe in the depths of my heart that, that other than the fact that Brian and I are different people, there's far more that's staying the same. And I want to go through five things that I think are staying the same. If, if I could have your permission to, to spend a few minutes of your time sorting through this. And I'll do this in a way that hopefully ties into this text from Philippians 3. So are you good to go? Everybody listening? Okay, here's the first one. We still have and will always have the same owner of this business. The org chart isn't changing. Jesus is Lord and sits on the throne and he's at the top of our org chart and everyone else is beneath, and the pastors are at the bottom. I have said it from the platform, and I don't care how much somebody disagrees and wants to talk theology. Jesus is the shepherd. The pastors are the sheepdogs. We're, we're, we're herding sheep, but he's the good shepherd, ultimately. He, he's the one that we ultimately trust and we follow. And any org chart that doesn't have him at the top is not an organization worth putting your money into or, or giving your time to. Our owner stays the same. We have many pastors, but we only have one king. Some of you came to this church long ago, some of you not so long ago, and some of you have come here because of you. What I mean by that is you came here with some need or something that was wrong or something you were longing for in your life. You came here like, you know, I know that I'm not right with God or I know that I've got this thing wrong or I know that my kids need to be raised up in the church. It was some need sort of thing. And I can tell you as a church planter that one of the things that I would teach church planting and I always talk about is is Missouri people. Do you know do you know? You know Missouri state motto is? The show me state. So many people come to a church like Missouri people saying, you know, show me your kids' ministry or show me your youth ministry or show me your worship or show me your... Preaching So many people come with a need or something they're looking for, for the church to fulfill something they have. There was a Barna, a famous Barna study many, many, many years ago now, and everybody debates the statistics, but over 90% of those people who self-identified as born-again believers when asked the question, why does the church exist, answered to meet my needs. This is the state of the church, uh, particularly in the West, that we... We oftentimes come and pick and stay because of a perceived or felt need that we want to have met. And while I acknowledge this as a reality, here's my deep prayer. I hope none of you will stay here to get your needs met. I hope you'll stay here and stay connected because of the all-surpassing greatness of Jesus, that this is a place where we will draw together in, in, in in unity in the midst of our diversity, in order to focus our time and our attention and our hearts on this all-surpassing God-man named Jesus who changes everything. I don't care how many times you heard it in Sunday school, it's still true. Jesus is the answer to every question. If that makes me a pinheaded fundamentalist, so be it. He's the answer to every question. He is the better beautiful. And so um, that stays the same. Second thing that stays the same is the mission. The mission of the church is essentially the Great Commission. Um, I have often said that if you ever walk into a church, and in some form or fashion, the mission of that church isn't stated in a way that's connected to the fulfillment of the Great Commission that you should run. Don't walk, run. Because that is essentially, at the end of the day, why we exist. The church exists for those who don't belong to it. Uh, and for a, a whole variety of other reasons as well, but the mission that the the purpose is I want to you know I want to know Jesus and the power of resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that somehow I might attain the resurrection from the dead, and that you might and that they might too. That's ultimately at the end of the day. That's what we want to be. That's what we want to do. If you're here, if we're here together, because of the mission, either because the mission has reached you and captured your heart, or you want to reach out to others, then I have good news for you. That is not changing. The job isn't done. It's not even mostly done. Amen? You don't have to get in a plane and fly somewhere to find people who need to know about Jesus. There are people within the sound of my voice who are desperately in need of being touched by God. And you're like, the sound of your voice? Yeah, I would say I'm including people in the room but certainly people within our our neighborhood. Amen? Amen. All right. Third thing. While I don't think we've always been so great at this and we have plenty of room for improvement, another thing that really isn't going to change is our strategy. Our strategy is something like what Paul says in the midst of this passage where he says, family, look, I don't consider that I've yet taken hold of this but one thing I'm going to do is forgetting what's behind. And when Paul says forgetting what's behind, he doesn't say, I don't like, you know, my, my memories. What he's saying is, is that I'm not bound by anything I've done before. I'm not making an idol out of anything that's happened before. What I'm going to do is continue to, to, to strain ahead toward, towards what is ahead. And what's ahead for Paul? What Paul's saying is what's ahead for me is to come, become more and more like Jesus in his thoughts, in his actions, in his attitudes, and I want to become more like him, and I think the people around me need to become more like him. So my personal mission is to see every person I relate to transformed more into the likeness of Jesus, and he's saying that that's the strategy is to press on toward that goal, to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So here's a couple elements of that strategy that I think you're going to see, and my job in the coming months is going to be to step back out of the way a bit and for Brian and others to rise up and begin to lay out some of this for you. But do you want to hear a couple cool aspects of the strategy? Everyone a minister. Everyone a minister. This isn't the priesthood of all educated believers, nor is it the priesthood of all, um, you know, ordained believers, or the priesthood of the platform. This is the priesthood of all believers. And if you, I'm not going to, you know, I mean, you can raise your hand in the spirit, but if you are a follower of Jesus, if you would say, you know, at the end of the day, if somebody came and said, I'm going to, uh, uh, you're going to either live or die today based upon your confession of Christ. Are you willing to, be, to, to pronounce Jesus as Lord and Savior at the cost of your life? And you say, yeah, I'll do that. If, that. if that's you, if you're in that camp, if you've crossed the line, no turning back into discipleship where you're growing more and more into the image of Christ, then you are a minister. You are a priest and a king in, in the economy of God. And you have a priesthood, a personal and non-transferable priesthood, a ministry that you have to live into that we have to help call you into that and equip you for that and kick you and coddle you and do everything we can to keep you activated in that. And if you're not in that right now, that's on us, but it's mostly on you. I dare you to amen that. How many of you think right now that you're living fully into your ministry that God's called you to? I do, and I want more. But we have to be willing to push the envelope on what it means for everyone to minister. One of the reasons I think the times now for the change we're making is I believe I'm a capacity hog. I think that I do most of it myself uh, because it's just who I am and it's the way I've trained and blah, blah, blah. I can give you all kinds of excuses. And I believe that Brian has a clear vision for eradicating that and making sure that you are activated in ministry. And that to me is very exciting. Can I tell you the second prong to that strategy? Getting outside of Sunday morning. You're probably not going to hear us talk a whole lot about changing things on Sunday morning. Do you know why? It's good enough, we don't think it's perfect. I don't think the preaching's perfect. I think the worship is cl- close enough to perfect for me. But, you know, we think things could get better, but we don't really think that's the need in the West to figure out how we can do, be shinier or brighter or, or, or to do things to make us more attractional because the f- fact of the matter is at the end of the day, what you, what you attract people with is what you keep them with. And if you attract them with a shiny service, then you always got to have a little shinier service. And that's not our aim to figure out how to make our Sunday service better. Our aim is to make every other day of the week a day of discipleship. And the primary way that we're going to push towards that is going to be establishing churches in your houses where you are having a place to do ministry, a parish to do ministry within your homes. And that Sunday after church until the next Sunday morning when church starts again, there is a place for ministry. doesn't mean that there aren't things that happen here. I'm a big, big believer in the value of the local church. I'm not a naysayer. I don't believe we should blow up the buildings and never have them. But I do believe that we give up. We we can, if we're not careful, build Christian ghettos where the only things that happen are quote-unquote Christian are the things that happen on campus. We we think there's a whole lot going on at home, and we we want that to be a place where we build. Okay. That's first two or three. Fourth one. The dream doesn't change. The dream is essentially... To, to, to persecute the goal of taking hold of that which Jesus has taken hold of in us. Jesus took hold of us. We, we were singing about, um, we'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon the cross. Essentially, what we're singing when we say that is, is you did something on our behalf to take hold of our lives. And because of what you've done for us, our deep desire is to press on, to go after with everything we've got, the goal of of, of, of living our lives in response to what you've done for us. And that's the dream is to see us, you know, become fully devoted followers. And I'm just going to say it this way. Brian and I talk a lot about this and sorting out, you know, who we are and who we've ever been. It's never been the dream of our congregation to be a great ministry. Certainly not in comparison to some other church we love the church. We love the churches that are around. I, always, I would say if, you know, I would put a bill, if we had a billboard that had one of those, you know, you know the cheesy billboards where you put the the little changing, you know, you put the letters up there each week, and usually there's a committee that decides what to put up, and they'll put something like, if you want to be a, if the best vitamin for a Christian is B1, and, and there are things that, you know, under same management for 2,000 years, and there's sorts of things that believer or non-believers drive by, and they're like, I would never go there, right? So if, I, if we had a sign like that, you know what I'd put up on it? I'd say, looking for a great church? Check out Hillcrest Baptist. <laughs> I would talk about every church that's in the area because I love, I, I, I don't think, it's not Coke and Pepsi, We're not in competition with some other church that's doing stuff. even if their theology is a little different. You know, if Jesus is Lord, put your hand in mine. We're on the same team. So we've never looked to try to be a great ministry in comparison to somebody else because I think that promotes something that's horribly competitive. When I was brand new in ministry and I was doing a lot of work with youth ministry, a girl came to our church for a long, 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 long time, and inch by inch she came closer to Jesus, and then she stopped coming. And I found out on a Sunday that she stopped coming, and somebody called me and said, Hey, did you hear about... Yeah, so-and-so, she got saved today. I was like, really? I haven't seen her in ages. She didn't get saved. No, she got saved at so-and-so Presbyterian church. I was like, what? I was so upset in my spirit that she, I really was. I was, I was like, what? She can't get saved at Covenant Presbyterian church. We've done so much work with her. And, and literally at my desk that Sunday afternoon, the Lord got hold of me and slapped me around and said, how dare you it's, you know, it, it's, we're on the same team. And so we are not interested. The dream has never been to be great by comparison. It's to have a great movement of God, to usher and be part of and to, and to, and to steward a great movement of God. Like revival. But revival is re- requires revival. you know? You, you have to revive. You have to have life, and then you have to bring it back again. And it, it involves, like, repentance and and a deep desire to to be zealous, to persecute this goal. I mean, think about it. Think about what is it you're most passionate about in life? Don't say it. I don't really really want to hear it. I mean, what is it you're really most... Be honest right now inside your head. What is it you're most passionate about? What is that thing that you most go after? Maybe it's like sweets or binge-watching or, you know, the news. Or maybe it's, you know, some element of theology. It could be, I mean, what is it you're most passionate about? What if you took that same zeal you have for that thing that you know you can see right now? Maybe it's being right. You know, whatever it is. Maybe it's making money. Whatever, if you could just take that thing and you could push that same thermometer or or volume control onto Jesus, what would that look like in your life? More of god and and not comparing ourselves to others, all right, the final thing that I believe will stay the same, and this is a kind of a trick because what i it 's principles the principles, and the reason it 's a trick is because now I have some things I can unpack under principles it's like you know points and sub points, so you go it 's only five things, but really it 's like nine so here. <laughs> Here, here are the things that remain the same under the principles, and I'll this. I won't have to preach these. I'll go quickly, and you're going to go, Amen, because they're affirming. Number one, a culture of truth. The Bible is the authoritative guide for life, and Jesus is the ultimate word of truth. Not anything else going on in the world. The Bible is the guide. Jesus is the is the is the tip of the spear of that guide. It all points to Jesus. If it makes sense in Him, if if it's who He says that. You know, he says it's right, and he says this is what we're to do. That's what we're going to follow. That's not going to change. Number two, a culture of simplicity, keeping the main thing the main thing. Jesus is the is Lord, and and we're not looking to try to complicate matters and and figure out, you know, uh, uh, seventy-five part formulas for you to be able to walk with the Lord. Third, a culture of transformation where people can come into the wall in here when we do gather together and be changed when they leave. Chains are broken off, luggage baggage is left. You're, you're lighter, you're newer, you're freer when you leave than when you came here or when you go to a house church, a culture of transformation, amen? Culture of authenticity, we're going to keep it real. That's the, I think maybe the thing we've been best at over the years is when you, sh- you know, meet us in a grocery store, we're not different people than when you meet us on a platform, mostly. I mean, I'm probably dressed in flip-flops and shorts and a t-shirt, so. We have to adjust our, our, our church, our organization has to adjust to changing times. but We have to cling to unchanging principles. The content of the gospel never changes. The container it's carried in is always changing. The problem of change isn't learning new behaviors. It's letting go of old ones. And when you ask someone to change, they're going to focus. Everybody ends up focusing more on what they have to give up, not on what they're going to gain. You know that? And you're like, well, you know, you're going to have to change some things. You know, if you go visit Dr. Downey, he says, you're going to have to change some things, in your diet, you're like going, oh, my word, I have to give up, you know, three bottles of wine and, and seven bars of chocolate every day. I mean, I really like having that. And he's like, well, you're going to get to live, you know, and we don't focus so much on what we gain but what we lose. And some people even prefer to remain in a painful place of what they know rather than the uncertain better. There was a biologist, or is a biologist, who I read this quote this week. He says, I'm 55, so just know I'm aiming at myself with this quote. To learn something new, one first has to unlearn something old. So learning is twice as much work for an older person as it is for a person with no experience. You know that? The older we are, the harder it is. And so, you know, Carol and I, I just saw this last night. It was kind of funny. Uh, Brian and Carrie were over with their kids, and we were... Celebrating a birthday, and we're looking at some old music. We have cassette tapes. (laughs) Anybody else have cassette tapes? Yeah, all of you. Well, okay, a couple of younger—I would say a little bit younger—but most, I would say, it's a forty and older at least sort of thing. Um, I don't think we have any eight-track tapes. Anybody have remember eight-track tapes? Right. So here's the deal: in a world that is all Apple Music and Spotify. we still have cassette tapes, and we don't always do so well, Carol and I, at curating our music because we don't quite understand how it works. And it's one thing for that to be true about your music. It's a whole nother thing for that to be true about your spirituality, right? There There are, you cannot get locked in in a cassette tape spirituality when God's working on Spotify. You've got to be willing to say, Lord, you know, help me. To, to move as you move. I don't want to run ahead of you. I don't want to fall behind you. And there are a couple options that present themselves in the midst of change, two that I think of very particularly. One, you can embrace change or you can resist it. You can, you can, what you resist persists. You can't disown something you don't first own. And you can be in charge of change or you can have change be in charge of you. You know, learning to love it. I, I, is there anybody here in the room besides me that loves change, I really do too. I like it. I don't know why. It's my, I, I blame my mom. My mom, I, I, I think it's fun. I enjoy it. And it's not necessarily natural. Our problem is that we try to pretend that our transient lives are permanent. The Bible tells us over and over again that we're passing through. We're just passing through. We are, we are temporary citizens on our way to a permanent home. Read Hebrews 11 and goes through that pretty clearly. Another thing we can do in, in the midst of change is we can grow or stagnate. Those are the only two options that you really get. I love how Ezekiel 47 lays it out. The Ezekiel 47, this mighty image of the rushing river of God that starts in a trickle under the threshold and becomes a river so deep and so wide and so furious in its movement that it says no person can cross it. Your only choice when you come to that point and you go, you know, 1,500 cubits, another 1,500... It goes from ankle-deep to knee-deep to waist-deep to a point that's so deep that no man can cross. And your only choice at that point is to either get in or to stay on the shore and stagnate. He actually even says in verse 12 of Ezekiel 47 that all this life is happening, but there's this one little area the water doesn't move. It's, it's a dead swamp. And so the host or the, the, the options are to go forward or backwards, to be a rearview mirror or a windshield, to, 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 to make a choice... There is an old TV host from long, long, long ago who says, looking back, my life seems like one long obstacle race with me as the chief obstacle. Charlie Brown once says to, to Linus, he's, he's eating his lunch, and Charlie is complaining about his lunch. He says, it's the same thing every day. And Linus says, well, who makes the lunch? And Charlie Brown says, well, I do. And so when it comes to change in the world, we all make our own lunch. You know, we have the opportunity to, to, to do things and to be activated in ways that help change to be, you know, palatable and tasty and to get something out of it that's good. And, you know, I'm going to wrap up with this. You can do this. You can, you can stay loose. If you want to be... If you want to live a life of excellence in the Lord where you're growing more and more into the likeness of Christ, as Paul talks about in Philippians, or, yeah, in Philippians 3, if you, want to, if you want to be successful at that endeavor, then you have to stay loose. You have to have viscosity in your muscles. You've got to be stretched. The five most important words that I know of for living a, a missional-type life, you want to hear them? Flexibility, 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 flexibility. Be ready to change. Be ready to go. The Lord's moving. You know something new's happening. Okay, and the second part of it is just this: keep a future orientation. Keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep our eyes fixed on the eternal and not on the temporal that's around us. Look forward to what is coming. Paul says that he's he's laying. He's letting go. He's like I have no choice but that, to let go of what I'm in and to strain to. Pursue with everything I have within my heart what lies ahead of me—that upward call. That and it's like my friend, our friend, Rich Stevenson, always likes to use the illustration of, of of swinging from a trapeze. If you're if you're in the in this trapeze show, and there comes a point where you realize you have to let go of the bar you're holding on to in order to take hold of the bar that's coming. You have to actually let go, and not only do you have to let go, you actually can't even grab for the next bar. You just have to be caught. That's grace. You have to just. Let go and throw your hands in the air and close your eyes and say, catch me, Jesus. And this is a future orientation. And then finally, the thing that always hits me is, is what I—it's called liminality. I didn't make up the word, but I love the word liminality. What liminality is, that place in between where you've left one thing and you're going into another. Being okay with being in this awkward place of transitioning from one place to another, crossing over and going, well, there's no going back there, but I'm not yet where God's called me to be. In a certain way, when you become a believer in Jesus, you live in liminality. You're no longer who you were. You have burned the ships, and there's no turning back, right? I've decided to follow Jesus, but you're not yet all you're going to be. So what do you do when you're in a liminal place? Do you fight to go back, or do you fight to, 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 to head into what God's calling? Paul says, I push every resource I have into the upward call. All right, Brian, come on up here because I'm done. Or Kayla, I'm sorry. I don't know who's, who's coming up. I might have found a new motto for my life. New to me. It's not new. It'd probably tons of you will go, let's so 2015. Well, it's more like so 1450. Do you know there was a day in the life of this world when Spain led the world <laughs> Spain led the world they were they led in in military conquest and culture and, um, religious zeal go back and watch Money Python clips about the Spanish Inquisition um, and when Spain led the world which is in the 15th century uh she the country the nation spain became so for lack of a better word so arrogant in her authority and in her posture in the world that on spain's coins there was a inscription that said ne plus ultra or non plus ultra does anybody know what that means it means There's nothing more. There's nothing beyond this point. Nothing further. They were essentially saying, when you've laid hold of Spain, and what Spain knows and what Spain's done, that's all there is. You found the end. Which was a really cool motto until Christopher Columbus in 1492 sailed the ocean blue and found a little something called the New World. I'm not here to argue about what they did with that discovery. But what happened in the heart of Spain is they came to the realization that uh, maybe we were a little, we jumped the gun a bit there with that coin motto. And after they discovered the new world and they realized that Spain wasn't the end, that there was so much more, they changed the inscription on the coin to this one. It just says, plus ultra, which means there's more beyond. And in the same pattern, there are some of us as believers who live our lives, if, our, if we had a tattoo inscribed on us, it would say non plus ultra. Either in arrogance, nothing here beyond for me to find, or in comfort, I'm good right where I am. I don't want to go any further than where I am. Or in self-deprecation. There could never be anything more in me. I mean, I'm just, this is all I can be. And the word of the Lord on your life is to cross out that first word and to say, plus ultra. There's more beyond. This is the very point that Paul is pressing into the Philippians. He's saying, persevere in Jesus. Always push for more. This doesn't mean you have to sell everything you have and move to another country. Most of the people that I know that are living plus ultra lives aren't living overseas to do it. Most of the people I know that are effectively living overseas or some other place for some other, you know, they've traveled a long ways away to live more beyond lives. They, the way they got there is by doing it where they lived. And so the answer to this isn't, you know, go somewhere. It's just do it now just to begin to trust God for the here and now to give you a deposit of His Holy Spirit that would say, I will not settle for what I know about Him or what I know about me or who I'm going to talk to about Him or the way we're going to be jealous for God's activity together. That's all I have to say about that. We'll talk more about this next week. But for today... I'm just going to ask you to stand if you're able. I'm going to pray. You can come forward if you'd like. I'm going to pray at the altar with Carol. We like to do that. We, we believe that we're called by God to spill it out every time we have the opportunity to open our mouths. And so we're going to ask him to fill us again at the altar. And if you want that, you can come forward and pray as well. Lord Jesus, what we ask is that you would create a meeting place when we gather together where childlike faith meets real maturity. Where those who are your children would long. They can no longer wait. That they'll literally persecute the goal of being bigger and wanting more and pursuing maturity. That we would would press on toward the goal of receiving our inheritance as kings and priests that we would tattoo on our hearts at least plus ultra there's more beyond you're not done with any one of us Lord the greatest days of every one of our lives lie ahead of us not behind us so come fill us Jesus you can come forward if you feel led